Tony, thank you. Thank you for posting that because 10 years ago, I lost my company, I lost my job, and I went into a deep depression for three years. And that idea of better versus bitter, right? I just wish I had that mindset back then. That would have made all the difference. Welcome back to Innovative Minds. I have a guest here with me that I've been following for some time and I'm very honoured to have someone that has achieved the level of success that Tony Nash has built a, I think, 100 mil ARR business without even any funding received and then went on to triple that, I believe, the last time I checked. He is, you know, an icon for us in Australia as young entrepreneurs we sort of look at him and go wow we want to be like him so when I saw him on LinkedIn and I saw sort of what he was publishing I was super inspired and I was like we need to get Tony Nash on and I've been chasing him for about I reckon six seven months to come on my podcast so I can get him on here speak about his journey how he's gotten to where he's gotten to and really find out the nitty-gritties to help all the other entrepreneurs out there to get to that next level. So thank you so much, Tony, for coming on and sharing your journey with us today. It's my honor and my privilege. Awesome. So Booktopia, wow. I mean, what what a success. I, I mean, we. I just kind of was listening to some of your podcasts and it was so funny. We were, I was looking at some of them going, books should never have done so well. You know, people would never think that you can take books. And we're saying, you know, books are out and, and there was so much within bookstores shutting down. And here you are accelerating and becoming a 100 mil ARR business. I want to go back to the sort of start of those earlier days to how you were able to go from even, you know, that zero to 10. I want to explore each journey by layer by layer and peel it so anyone listening on at different levels can gain knowledge, experience from you. Sure. So to go back um, to the prequel, what happened before Booktopia, I think um, is important because I think a lot of success stories, it's interesting. What were they doing before that? Um, to finally get to that point where they, they, I don't know, they just caught the wave, they, things fell into place and they, and they could smash it. So, so before Booktopia, um, we had an internet marketing business. And when I say we, I've been in business with my brother and my sister, my brother-in-law since the late nineties. And, and so we, um, we were getting other companies to the top of Google and driving traffic into their websites and been doing that for a few years. And, we did a job to get Angus and Robertson to the top of Google. They outsourced their website and all of the fulfillment to a company in in uh, in Sydney that did it all for them. And this company had 80 bookstores, websites that they were managing and fulfilling the orders. And so we had a meeting with them to say, hey, we've got Angus and Robertson to the top of Google. Mm. Why why don't you introduce, introduce us to your other clients so we can get them all to the top of Google and you can make more money? And that... That meeting happened at Christmas of 2003, and the owner of the company said, no, nah, I'm not interested. I said, you don't want to make more money? He goes, look, it's not our business. We manage bookstore websites, and we fulfill those orders. That's what we do. I said, well, how does it all work? And they said, give us the name of your store, and within 10 minutes, we can have 
a bookstore website up and running with a million books on there. And if you sell anything, we pay a commission. I said, well, that sounds interesting. Mm. And, and so he goes, yeah, yeah, but no internet, only businesses made anything out of it. It's all come off the back of a traditional bookstore. Now, to just to roll back a, a little. So we ended up in internet marketing because before that we had a chat software business. It was the late 90s um, and uh, my original, uh, well, my main career was in recruitment for the IT industry. And in the mid 90s, I set, set up my own recruitment agency on the internet. And I would tell people, I'm an internet recruitment agency. And back in the mid 90s, people asked, what's the internet? So <laughs> for 26 years, I've been running internet businesses. And and like I in we were the third recruitment agency on seek.com.au. So I started two years before Seek started. And and so so we we um you know we had come from that background and then we had created this chat software product mm. in the late nineties so we could chat to our candidates mm. while they were sitting at their desk rather than having to run outside on a mobile phone and talk about a job that they were interested in, right? So we'd we'd developed this software for our business but it ended up being a product and other companies wanted to use it now for those that are old enough or even if you weren't the late 90s was a massive dot-com boom and we thought we we're going to make our fortune in chat, chat software because the internet is taking off and so we sold the recruitment company to focus on the chat software right. and pretty well a month after we did that there was a dot-com crash which oh. we got caught up in and our business was not going to make any money so so we were sitting around the table going, how are we going to pay pay ourselves? How are we going to feed our families? Um, and and we, we had really very little money coming through. And so I was talking to a web designer saying to them, you know, Google's been going for a few years. It's getting more and more popular. Mm. Um, how do you get to the top of Google? Told me what to do. So within a month or two, we got to the top of Google for chat software and live help. And so then then it was just um, a conversation that I had with a, with a chat, with a... Um, with a small Australian company about using chat software. And they said, look, I'd love to chat to people. I just need more people coming to the website. And so I did a proposal for $500, <laughs> got them to the top of Google. And and then I was talking to the largest car rental company in New Zealand about the software um, as well. And they said, no, 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 we, we don't need to chat to people. We just need more people coming to our site. And I, and I said, well, I can get you to the top of Google. Give me a proposal. And uh, and so I did it. And instead of putting one in for $500, I put one in for $18,000. <laughs> So I spoke to the guy for an hour on the phone about all of the things we're going to do to drive traffic and improve his business and 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 accelerate revenue. Anyway, after an hour, he says, all right, let's do it. So I put down the phone. I looked at my family. I said, shit, we're in big trouble now. We have no idea what we're doing. But from daybreak to midnight, we learned the art of driving traffic into sites. And so, so we quickly morphed from this failing chat software yeah. business to this surviving and then thriving internet marketing um, consultancy. And so, so when we got to, uh, so during, this is interesting. So during that period of the internet and we had, we already had, <clears throat> we had the recruitment and we had the chat software still, it was like, how many pillars could we create to have money coming through so we could expand, um, we could expand the business. And mm -hmm. so, so when the, Booktopia, or when the bookstore conversation, Christmas 2003, when that conversation occurred, it could be another pillar, mm. but we didn't know. Mm. And so it was, it really was a side project. You hear of these 
you know, side hustle kind of yeah. thing. But it wasn't a, like when you think about me um, and the book industry or the death of books, it was more, it wasn't like a light bulb moment where I went, bang, here's an opportunity yeah. where some people have had in the past. I call it more of a Hansel and Gretel um, idea in that one breadcrumb led to another, led to another. And before you knew it, you had gone down the path and you ended up at this incredible place. Mm. So, and that, that Hansel and Gretel part of the story probably was about two years. So one thing led to another, led to another. So we were doing our internet marketing consulting from the Booktopia started um, in February of 2004. So a couple of months after that initial meeting, and it took a couple of years for us to kind of like it took me three days to sell my first book. Mm. Um, I was a Google AdWord expert, so I knew what to do. I knew how to build the ads and I would work from 9 p.m. to 2 a.m. every night. Um, basically, Booktopia was started on Pepsi Max. Um, that's what kept me going <laughs> all the way through. Um, and so so I would work on it every night and build up the Google ads and 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 build that campaign out and and took three days to sell the first book and I'd done a $2,000 by month one. By the fourth month, I was up to 30000 a month. By the end of the year, 100000 a month. And by the end of two years, 200000 a month. So we ended up with a couple of million dollars in, in revenue wow. after. What, after What year was that? Years. What year was that? So, that... so 2004 through to 2006. Okay. And then to, towards the end of 2006, because we had already sold our recruitment company to a company listed on the ASX, right? we'd already gone through the due diligence process of actually selling a business. And it was pretty clear to us that we have an online bookstore turning over $2 million. Maybe some might want to buy it. But because we were more of a marketing arm, it was this other company in Sydney that was doing the managing the site and doing the fulfillment. And because... I had a programming background in the mid eighties. Um, I was a programmer, but my brother-in-law was a IBM software engineer. He had worked at IBM and an IBM mm. business partner. So we, we felt that we got to do this ourselves. So mm. we, we in the background started working on building our own website and looking at um, all the backend systems that we needed to support that. So after three years of using that other company mm. and getting to a couple of million in revenue, we parted ways. So Around 2007, we moved from our little 60 square meter office in North Sydney to 500 square meters in Artarman mm. in a little, you know, just in a little um, uh, warehouse office um, place. And we bought some shelves on eBay. We hired a warehouse manager and we rang the publishers and we said, it's us, it's Booktopia. We're turning over $2 million a year. Mm. And uh, and so they um, they said, never heard of you because all our orders have been going through this other company. So right. we had to start off with basic terms and basic basic discounts. Now, to to give everyone like a, an understanding of what was going on then, we still were doing our internet marketing. So right. on one hand, Booktopia was growing and we were trying things with Booktopia and because we were doing that, we could kind of apply them to our clients. But at the same time, we had been doing stuff for our clients and I was able to use that. Got to it. Kind of build. That's really interesting because yeah. I guess sometimes people hear what I've heard is you can't do too many things, Mel, you know, you need to stay focused and um, listening to yours, like similar to you. I also was in, I had a business that I did the first software, but I failed in it because Google ads by then was super expensive by the time I came in to do 
buy $10 Google ads. It got me nowhere. Maybe it didn't have a product market fit potentially as well, but you know, I wanted, I was like really passionate about helping beauticians to find direct jobs rather than work for somebody. So they would, cause I was thinking, well, these beauticians, they're, they're the skill and they're the person that they're only getting paid like $15 an hour. They could be getting so much more if they did home service, you know, of nails and so forth. And I thought I'll build this software and, you know, people can then find people and they can go direct. And then I started going to Google thinking, you know, everyone's going to do this. This is a brilliant idea. And Google was just so expensive. It drained me. And I was a young entrepreneur then, and I didn't know exactly how to go in raise capital or even have the confidence to back myself because I was like, who's going to invest in me really at the end of the day with zero, like what, $300 a month or something ridiculous coming in after I've spent 500. So I think Google's, you know, later on changes as well right now for us as entrepreneurs that um, we're trying to do that. And maybe back then you didn't need a, such a flashy website that you do right now. Uh, uh, it's, it's a good point, but it's worth understanding. So so the book industry has 30 million active titles. Yeah. Um, it's a very, very, it's the biggest of a skew list. Um, so so what I did was I, I wrote ads for specific books oh. and authors and titles and sent them deep into the site where those, where those books were. So the cost uh, per click um, was not expensive, oh. but if I was just going for books or bookshop or bookstore, uh, which we were, um, that was expensive, but I could average it out the cost by paying, be able to pay for some of those, but because I'd written all, and handwritten tens of thousands of ads, yes. right, specifically, right? Yes. Um, and, and so therefore the average cost per click was low, but when you, when you're kind of got a very few search terms. Yes. Um, it is literally like trying to get um, a a spot or a shop on Main Street and, well, there's only a few spots. And if you're off Main Street and you're on the second page of Google, then you're going to get very little. The other thing, though, that's really worth mentioning to your, to your listeners is that I was really um, vigilant and still am that for every dollar that we spend on marketing, we must get $10 of revenue. Right. And if we don't get that, we don't do it. Right. How so, long would you test that we didn't though? Raise capital, how long would you test that? Like, you, how long would you wait well, until that, that was relating? That was that was relating to the book margins, market, right? Yes. So every yes. industry could be different. Correct. Like, there's some industries with much less electronics, much less margins, whereas consulting is 100% margin. So you might find that you can do more. But each industry, you'd need to set your own Goals. kind of lock and load. But mm. there have been times when others have outbid us right yes and i've said knock themselves out because i know at that you know when it comes to books at that price it's not sustainable you are losing money um and therefore keep doing it because eventually you'll get to a point where you go all right we've done that for long enough and then we've just kept hold the line hold the line so so having that um and we've done it for um you know coming up to 19 years yes uh, so yes so that's been and and when people it during the like downturns or like when there was in 2008-9, the GFC, they had, there was all this um, inventory of of um, advertising in cinemas and on radio because people were, you know, were not, not advertising. Yeah. And I, they would come to me and they say, we've got this unbelievable, like you wouldn't believe it's 80% off the normal price. I said, yeah. well, 
great. How can I measure it? Oh, well, we don't know anything about measuring. It's like, well, I won't do it then. So you've, you've got to be able to measure it to work out whether it's working for you. And to get, we went from zero to $150 million in revenue without raising any capital. Yes. Because we simply focused on having the customer hand over them. They were our investors. I'm going to hand over my money to you, and then we're going to use that your money to buy books and to write software and hire people and mm. increase our facilities and so forth. So, so that that was it, you're playing the long game yeah. of that organic growth. But um, at the end of the day, um, you know what I had seen. Um, I'm going to be 60 within less than a year, eight months, and so and so. Um, I had seen over all the years and I started Booktopia you know, just after I was 40. So, so the, the idea of, of having um, a capital raise and then using that money, I'd seen it so many times where, right, we've got to get customers, we've got to get marketing, but mm. 99 times out of 100, that, um, that money was blown. Mm. And there was one recently, um, it was called Fast, I think, this mm. checkout mm. system and $160 million raise and they got to $600,000 worth of revenue. Mm. It's like, man, mm. you could have put that in a in a bank and be earning <laughs> more money per year than yeah. like, do it. You know, like, yeah. it's, that's, that's embarrassing. And that's really, really important. A capital raise, you better make sure that you're getting to, you know, break even ground zero um, before, before you have to go and get more, try and get more money, so in with, my opinion. Absolutely. So with you... You get you use Google. You're really knowledgeable about Google, and you've also got the right sort of product, I think, for Google, where people go, "I need this exact book." So you, you're obviously going in and researching deeply on which books have got the most demand. So it's like you must, at some point, turn into more of a researcher. As going, okay, this book's going to be is being Mostly searched algorithms. more. Yeah, being algorithms. searched. So yeah, data mining. But think, remember, Amazon had built its business. 10 years before on it as well. So right, um, right, right. it was a proven model, right? So that, so that what with Google ads and that strategy, how did that take you all the way to the 100 mil ARR? Like at what point did you have to start no, diving? So Google ads, Google ads is about 35 to 40% of our revenue. Okay. Um, in the beginning it was more, uh, but because we were SEO experts as well, so optimizing the site, um, we never did any black hat or you know mm. dark SEO, so it was always ethical SEO. Um, so when there was all these um, Google updates, um, as they've had over the years, we never got um, impacted. I kind of use this very simple philosophy. I don't can't say that it's it's probably fundamentally still true, but it was like um, if you don't have the words on the page, mm. you won't be indexed. Yes. If you're using a different word, like it's got to use the words on the page. Mm. On the internet, size does matter. Mm. So a small 10-page site versus a 1,000-page site, Google will look at the 1,000-page site and go, that's got to be more of an authority than this little thin, thin site. Um, that um, getting uh, the internet to point to you. Mm. So um, I'll tell you a sto story. So first of all, actually, I'll tell you how I came mm. up with the name Booktopia. Mm. Because yes. I'd been racking my brains. I yes. wanted to have a name that people would, would, you know, make sense, right? And my recruitment company was called Best People. Okay. And I thought long and hard about, you know, what, what am I, who am I? You know, I want people to, when they hear it, what do you reckon I'm industry I'm in? 
Um, and so I came up with the name Best People, and and then there was a at the same time a Best People in the UK, oddly enough. Oh. So they flew me over there to see if they wanted to buy me, um, which they did, but I knocked them back because my family joined me. And I said, I told them how I came up with it. You know, I just you know rattled around and I thought of you know what's there, who. Were. I said, how did you guys come up with it? And they said, oh, we we engaged a German company and paid twenty thousand pounds, <laughs> you know, which was like fifty grand to come up with a name and that's how they did it. And I, it was a, it was a great, like it was within me to come up with a name and it was a good name. And so when it came to Booktopia or trying to think of a bookstore, I was, I'd already had that one experience and I thought, you know what, I'm, let me, and I just couldn't come up with any name that I was happy with. And what was really important to me mm. was that if you said, this, this is really, if you, if you say it and they spell, how do they spell it without, without it, getting the spelling wrong which mm. is really important mm. and it, when you say the name booktopia what it, what business do you reckon they're in and rather than coming up with some fancy name with you know yes. a, a double j and a si you know triple silent q and all these ridiculous mm. unique names but nobody can spell like that was really i was really dead against that mm. in terms of coming out with a name so i was on a camping i had that meeting with the people um about their online book business and that we could start our own online store so I was on a camping trip up the coast of New South Wales trying to come up with the name of a store I really wasn't happy with it and then I was in the national parks of New South Wales on a really hot Australian summer's day and the cicadas and the insects were unbelievably loud and I turned to the person I was with and I said to them it's like that kids movie ants where the insects talk about this place called insectopia <laughs> and I thought Oh, Booktopia, that'd be a good name. <laughs> and of course, back in 2003, we were we were still on dial-up modems. For those that are old mm -hmm. enough to remember the sound of a dial-up modem, yeah, I had right? that. there was no on the phone and wondering if that's still available. I had to wait a whole week till the camping trip was over. <laughs> Run inside, turn on the computer, yes, and I bought the URL. So, so that having that name was was really really important. Anyway, so so getting back to um, what what I did in terms of SEO, words on the page, so find out what people search for, um, size of the site, well, making sure that the site is indexed. Booktopia mm -hmm. you know, had millions of products, so making sure that the, the bots could make their way through, we, we had that um, to our advantage. The third one was, like, if you're an island, if, you, if you're an authority on a certain subject, like let's just say, I don't know, beauticians or mm -hmm. finding a beautician, right? But but no one is pointing to you, mm. like you will not be discovered. Mm. And the reason why I knew that is both uh, Ser Sergey Brin and Larry Page were PhD students. And mm. when you're doing your PhD, um, one of the most important things that um, they worked out is that um, you write a bibliography at the end. Who are you referencing to make your work, you know, important, unique, an authority on your whatever you've done, right? And so they use that same principle that if if all these PhD papers have been using that one book, that one is always in the bibliographies. That must be an that must be an important one because everyone's referring to that. So they kind of use that principle um, to then algorithmically write that to then build the the logical importance of the internet um, as far as Google was concerned. So. So Booktopian go, been going for a few months, four months, I think it was. And um, we, started, we were growing. I was up to 30,000 a month. So it was faster than yeah. we expected. So I reached out to the Australian Booksellers Association to go, should we become a member? It was $400 for the year, right? Mm -hmm. 
And, and they said, of course, of course, you should become a member, please. And I said to them, well, what are the advantages? And they said, well, we can give you discounted freight through Australia Post, our contract. I said, but this other company is doing, you know, they, they get their discount. They said, oh, yeah, you're right. They're members. Yeah, they get that. It's true. So what else? <laughs> discounted insurance. Well, they handle all, yeah, you're right. So there was nothing, nothing for us to become a member. And I, and I said to them, do you have like a logo that we could put on our website um, and we could link so yes. you knew who we were, right? And so so they said, uh, um, well, we don't. And I said, well, could you? And they said, well, we'll have to have a committee meeting. Yeah. So a month later, they ring back, right? Now, the reason why I did that was because I wanted to create an authority. I wanted to create trust with customers that they came to us and they go, oh, they remember. Now, no one had ever asked for it before. Now. True, in that instance, we were linking to them, so that's yeah. of no yes. benefit to us. Yeah. But they also had a site where they had members who link, they linked to us, so okay. a, a book industry. So <clears throat> to to have, um, if we had a link from a beauty website yeah, and it was irrelevant, you know, like yeah. Google picked up on that really quickly. And so if there's no relevance, right, it's not worth it. Then we started to sponsor um Book industry awards, um, indigenous literacy um, programs. So we we started to get inbound links, Got which it. we paid for. Yeah. Um, so the internet and Google would go, oh, they're they're part of books. They they seem to be more and more important, and, and so therefore that's real ethical um, yeah. linking to yeah. then create. To, so it's kind of like well, you're in the ocean, right? And um, a Google update comes through, and it's like. Well, does that did that capsize you and sink you, or were you or you an ocean liner that just bounces off and then bounces and then what, how come they? Because we've been doing it for so long that there's articles on Fairfax websites, there's articles on news yes. websites, there's um, every the ASX now like that's yes you've got to be busy doing that. It's a it's painful, um, <laughs> but you have, you have to. to put so so words on the site size of the site. The rest, of, you can't be an island, so the internet needs to, over time, ethically point to you. And then what I believe, although it's never been proven, the fourth one is that Google analyzes um, the bounce back. So, the, you know, the bounce, bounce rate. Rates, so yeah. they do a search, then they deliver it like, I don't know, you search for things to do on the weekend, mm. or yeah. whatever it is, right? And they here's the top 10. People went there and came straight back. Google's analyzing that going, it's not relevant. So if you're sitting there going, geez, I, I, why don't we try and, there's a lot of searches for cryptocurrency, right? Which obviously there is. Um, and let's just write a page about cryptocurrency or our thoughts around crypto. Yeah, but if it's not relevant to the person who did the search, they're bouncing back. So all that effort is wasted because it's not relevant to. So that's really important as well to make sure. So Google will be, and that's logical. That yeah. Is. So that they're the fundamentals, in my opinion, of SEO. It's so much more complex. Totally, and totally. Hired many experts to do that, but but so the all road, getting back to your Google Ads, it's the all roads lead to Rome um, approach. That means that you're going to have partners, affiliates. You're going to have um, SEO. You're going to have PPC. You're going to have pay per click. Uh, you're going to have um, lots of different streams. And each, some of them are very incremental, mm. but it all adds up, right? So you, you need to, you, 
and the great thing about SEO and all the others and and partnerships is that that becomes not not predictable or certain, but but there's you're not paying you're not paying necessarily you might be paying on success rather mm. than paying to get the person to your site. Yeah. So I love we've just covered um, backlinking from Tony Nash, which I didn't think we would um, get into. But if you are interested with what Tony has just um, gone into, and I think it was really nice high level is he's talking about backlinking. So if you go search that, you will be able to get into that even more deeper. So I want to go um, with you, Tony. So I think obviously you've got software and marketing background. I mean, you really are in the seat to drive a company uh, forward, you know, like they're very core skills and in the environment when it's just up and coming. I mean, you are carrying the, you know, two top skills to really um, go to the next level. So I do think you've, you know, you've gone and had some already success also in running a business. So, you know, it does make sense now that it's all coming together sort of, it must be just feeling like, oh, I picked up this from there. Oh, I've seen how it went to ASX. So, there must there must have been that you know uh, level of confidence as well as you're seeing it happen so far. So, I w- can you talk me through? So you know, here you are in Book Booktopia. It's all happening. Um, it's all feeling right. You're growing at this exponential uh, rate. Did it? How did it feel for you? Like as an entrepreneur, we sometimes need to really know. Yes, this is happening for me. I'm in the crux of it, and I need to get ready for hiring or really good people or the people that have come with me on this journey because that's something I wanted to um, – I feel that that I've had three years in advertising. I've had two years before that in software. So I connect with everything you're saying, you know, and, you know, I've had a failing before that and I've had a successful career before that and I feel like everything, all the hard work sometimes is coming together and some things are clicking into place where I can actually hold a conversation with yourself and go, okay, I know that talking about backlinking or I know that's what we've got to do. Once we finish this podcast, I've got to make sure that I go back and reach out to you and go, Hey, here's the podcast. Here's the summary. Can you please, you know, publish this over on your site so we can backlink to each other. Like I have strategically thought that that would give me huge credibility if I can go in and, you know, link to my key people. But here you are now in this going back and you're seeing this all happen tell me about then what do you do like is there team like what happens with your team are you thinking about hiring replacing like is that the next level once you've sort of got your marketing and this you know in this volumes coming in geez melanie i think um i mean you've only got me for an hour but just that all those questions i think this is going to be a trilogy um we, i think we need three hours um to get through everything there's a, there's a few things in there that I need to cover. So first of all, um, the entrepreneurial mindset um, is, is unbelievably precious. So um, you talked about the failure that you had before, right? So I, I, have a, I have a, I like to break up words. So I take the word intuition, you know, your gut feel, I don't know, you meet someone and you you like them or um, going on a trip or you're traveling and you, you just feel like you need to go into that museum or church or restaurant, right? Intuition. But if you break it up in tuition, tuition, you know, that's the fee that you pay to do a course or it's, it's, a, it's like you're, it's like what you're learning. And, and so 
um, I, don't, I haven't had any failures ever. So I don't use that word. Yeah. It's my mindset because I've been in training. So when we, in 2016, we tried to list on the ASX and we spent $2 million with lawyers and accountants and we're a few weeks away from, from listing and then Amazon announced they were coming to Australia. So the fund managers all said, well, they're going to annihilate you, so we're not investing. And so we had spent all this money to get to there. And when it was clear that we weren't going to be able to list, you know, I went, I went into um, a grieving process for three hours. And at the end of three hours, it felt like one door closed and another 10 opened. Yeah. Now, when we tried to list in 2020, four years later, we would never have been able to do that had we not been in training to have the intuition. So, so we had, I know we're jumping a little ahead, but okay. um, the pandemic had hit. Uh, we had done our first capital raise um, in January, $8 million with a $12 million debt facility. And then five weeks later, the pandemic hit. Little did we know. Um, everyone had gone into lockdown. We had the money to scale the business out. Market valuation at the time went from 120 million to 320 million within 10 months. Now, we did an 11 week IPO, which is or the probably very few that could have done it as fast yeah. um, or have ever done yeah. it as fast, but we did it so fast because we'd done one, we tried one four years before. There was a lot of stuff that had already been in, in process and we knew what we had, to, but everything was happening right there. So we've had something happen with the ACCC. Um, I got um, fired from the company that um, that I founded um, in in July this year. So when these things happen, it's like my my mindset is to go, hmm, well, that came out of left field. I wasn't expecting that. But what I didn't do is get angry and pissed off and want revenge. And, you know, I'm sure I could add a swear word in there, but, you know, um, it's kind of like I, I didn't do that. It's like, hold on a second, you know, well, what are my options? What what can I do? And when you're an entrepreneur and you're running your own business, like you you have got to have be um, emotionally and mentally available to deal with those things because stuff comes out of left field. I'll never ever forget moving from being an employee as a recruitment consultant to running my own company and going, oh my god, I've got rent, I've got advertising bills, I've got I've got um, employees. It was just like. Uh, it was so stressful. Mm. It was, really was stressful um, because I, I didn't ever think about that. It just kind of got handled, right? So then all of a sudden you, you're paying for everything. So, so um, and then stuff will come when you least expect it. And, and you've got to go, hmm, bring it on because you're just trying to work out whether I can go the distance or not. Yeah. Now, there'll be some, some things where you go, well, actually, I'm going to exit from that. My intuition says, now you did talk about people. So I'll give you an example. Mm. Um, it was about 2010 and we had been using for, well, then six years, kind of outsourced bookkeeper, accountant as we were growing. And and it, it got to a point where I said to the guy that had been managing us over those years, I said, you know, it really feels like we should have a CFO. Kind of you know, someone in-house who's really taking care of us Financially, we're bigger now. Uh, we would have been, I don't know, $10, $10 million in, in revenue. And he goes, you know what? I've been thinking the same thing. So building the team quite often has been a lot. Of, okay, who 
Who do we need? Yeah. But because I'm a salesman, it's like the first question I ask is like, hmm, so what revenue do we need to be at to afford that? Yes. So what I don't do is I don't go, all right, I definitely need a CFO or I definitely need a designer or this or that. It's like, well, where do we need to be to be able to make sure we can fund that? And it's like, oh, I need another, I don't know, 300 orders a day or 300 orders a week or something. And it's like, right, what can I do to create that to afford that? That's that's very much about the way that I built Booktopia um, to have, I think we had 25% year-on-year growth for 17 years, something like that. And, and um or, you know, organically. So, so that, and, and sometimes that was less than what we could have got. That mm-hmm. was actually, that's a really important point is that um, there's also this aspect of growth that um, you don't want to get too many orders that all of a sudden your customers are uh, um, overwhelmingly getting pissed off. Yeah. So I was always comfortable with three to 5% of customers getting pissed off because you can't make everyone happy and things, but, Australia, you're relying on other Australia Post and publishers and suppliers mm. and whatever. That to, like you can't, you can't. There's not enough margin in it to be be perfect. Yeah. Um. But but to make sure that that is as small as possible and not feel um, crucified or feel like you've completely stuffed up because you've got people complaining. Um. Yeah. I've got a question for but you in that bit. So if you're growing at this really fast rate, say. Would you say for my company, okay, I've got more, more people coming in now and taking our service than maybe I can actually add on the team. Would you recommend that you add a wait list instead if you're concerned that, you know, you can't handle the pissed offness potentially or the quality, but, or would you have a tolerance of like 10% or, you know, like, yes, like I can have a, well, at what tolerance, you know, would you be like, I think I can still, you know, get through it? Look, um, depends um what the appetite is to increase your rate so consulting work is different to um to what we're doing which is physical product that needs to be mm. picked packed and shipped mm. if it's a SaaS platform then you know bring it on because yes. basically it, sh- it should be um in self-service mm. maybe it's not if it's more complicated and you need to have um, a tech team in the background to help with all the issues to get people onboarded but um so everyone, everyone's different, but um, yeah, you don't want to. Um, if if you're offering a quality consulting service and you're already at capacity, then you've got to be able to learn to say no. Yeah, I think um, it's I think when it's a it's got SaaS, but it's still got a consulting piece while you're still developing further the process of that, yeah. you know, piece. I think it's it's difficult to know. Okay, should I take a tolerance level to to go? Up your price. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Cool. Okay. It's like that. It's like the five hundred dollars versus the eighteen thousand. It's mm. like um, um, it only means that um, the universe is telling you that you yeah. bring a lot of value to what you do. Um, now you might have your old clients still on the original, you know, yes. the original fee, but new ones coming on. This is my new fee. I do keynote speaking, right? And, yeah. Um, you know, I don't mind saying you know, my for a forty-five minute session. I'm not charging you, Melanie, but yeah. um, 40, 45 minute session, it's, yeah. it's $8,000. Yeah. But I, I heard someone uh, in conversation recently and they're on 35000 right? And others are on 2000 right? So um, the more popular you are uh, and the more 
um, maybe the more famous or yes. the more um, mainstream. There's uh, politicians, ex-politicians or, you know, Olympic champions. They all can uh, get unbelievable um, speaking fees. But Totally. Um, That's about your personal brand, you know. At eight grand, you know, I... Yeah, but at eight grand, you know, I might only get four four a year. So right. um, that might be, you know, that might be enough for me with everything else that I do. Do you know Absolutely. what I mean? Like, so, Got it. so Got it. you might, I could say my fees a hundred thousand dollars, but well, how many gigs have you done? Well, I've done them in the last five years. So <laughs> you know, call it, call, you know, like, yeah, you know, there's a there's a fine line between uh, supply and demand and and you know, getting it. a deal done. So no, yeah. that's. That's, tell me about this recent um, in training that you experienced, which was you getting fired from your own company. I mean, you've had this brilliant journey and then, wow, you know, and I think that's when we were meant to catch up for our first podcast and then that's when I found out and then I saw your LinkedIn post and it went viral and it was your most viral yeah. LinkedIn post where you shared so authentically it was, you know, I really loved how open you and you just opened up and it got everyone so attached to you and your personal brand there as well. So what has, what happened and, you know, what, how did you, you know, stay resilient in your mind? Because that's, you know, that's something that you've been talking about, that that's what you've got to do. Mm, yeah. So um, first of all, let's step back to a year ago. So you're talking towards the end of uh, 2022. I had a meeting with uh, the CEO, uh, the chairman and one of the board members to say, look, I really, my, this is my intuition. My, my intuition says that it's time for me to step out of the CEO role. I need someone, and we need someone in there who can re really run an ASX listed business um, in the way that it needs to be run. And my expression was, it's been quoted in the media, is that, guys, I'm, I'm Christopher Columbus. I'm not the king of Spain. Don't ask me to run the country. I want to expand the empire. Yeah. That's my talent, you know. I can yes. I can smell cash. So when people want to hand over money for a service or something, that's that's really what I I'm good. That's why the growth of the company. Mm. But so, so I'd already gone to them about this, and then no, no, no. This is the chairman. No, you need to be the CEO. That's who people believe in, and you're the guy. Mm. All right. Well, you know best. You've been the chairman of mm. many other companies before, mm. so I trust your assessment. So off we go. Anyway, within four or five months, it was like, okay, no, I think you're right. We need to get a CEO and you'll move into a chief growth officer role, which is basically a director of revenue or director of sales, call it what you will. And and so that was announced. And then with, within two months, they decided to um, fire me, but they, they, did, they did it without any consultation. So I literally was blindsided, walked into a room and said, we're terminating you. And, and my reaction was, so, well, you know, I wasn't expecting it. So what, mm. you know, how do you see that playing out? Mm. Like, um, don't forget, I'm a major shareholder of Booktopia, mm. still own 15%. So, mm. so it was like, um, mm. um, you know, my reaction wasn't, wasn't anger. Mm. It was like, okay, um, what, you know, that, that was, that's not what I expected. So there was, and, and to create some context there, I think for everyone is that, um, we had worked for 20 plus years and never took any money off the table. So before the IPO and at the IPO, and yeah, in fact, even after the IPO, we were able to sell some shares. So I was already in a financial position that if I chose to, I wouldn't have to work. Mm. Um, 
not how I planned it. Like I, mm. I do want to work actually, and I'm, mm. I'm excited about what I'm doing now. Mm. But the, um, but the, the reality of the situation was not dire to the point of you bastards, you, you know, like you screwed me and my family. It's like I, I was already kind of, you know, like, you know, you, you bet. We, when you say I'm going to bank that, you know, when one of those shows where they where they go around and question and you, they bank it, mm-hmm. like you, it's a bit like we had banked a certain amount of money that uh, when this happened, it wasn't, you know, wasn't the world exploding or imploding. So that that's creates some context there, uh, which is an important thing for all entrepreneurs to make sure that you do get money off the table and that you do bank that on on the way, or however that may be through mm-hmm. dividends or. A, say on an equity event of some description so so then when that when that was finally announced two weeks later you talk about that linkedin message mm-hmm. so what happened it hit the media and my phone sms calls emails socials you know link everything was going off the charts i couldn't mm-hmm. it couldn't believe like because people were worried they knew yeah. it's your baby um yes. it, all those things anyway so i just had to put up that post are you okay in capitals, question mark? And I said, this is my are you okay day. Mm. And guys, I am absolutely okay. Like, yeah, sure, this is not what I expected, but um, it's, you know, I'm, I'm in really good shape. I'm lucky enough um, that my wife and I bought a farm mm. uh, down in the Southern Highlands and it's not big, it's just a small mm. hobby farm, but I love my ride on mower. So I said, mm. you know, I'm on gardening leave and the yeah. idea of me getting to mow the lawn was very very appealing. It's one of the things that I do enjoy, mm. and and so, um, but the main thing about that post was that I um, and it was pretty clear to me um, when it first happened. I said, "Is my choice to be better from this than be bitter from it?" And as an entrepreneur, um, you, you've you know, or in life, quite frankly, anyone doesn't matter whether you're working for someone else. It's really your choice. And so, what to be better from it means? What am I going to learn from this? Mm. And, and so I put that post up. Now, to give some context, when I do a podcast, interview an author, I might get 2,000 views on, on mm. the LinkedIn profile, um, the LinkedIn post. Mm. If I, when, we, when we released the robots, I got 20,000 views. Mm. When we listed on the ASX, I got 45,000 views. And this one posts 370,000 views, right? Mm. And it was like the comments and the feed, it was just nuts. And it was all about mental health. Now, yeah. I was getting private messages as well. So to give you guys an idea, someone that I'd actually known, I didn't, you know, I knew of, I know them, 40 years, they sent me a message to go, look, that Tony, that that mess, that post is really self-deprecating. I've been in the same situation. And in my opinion, I think you should remove it, right? Because they'd gone through it before. And it was, and an hour later, I got one, oddly enough, from someone else that I also knew for 40 years um, who posted he sent me a private message. He go, Tony, thank you. Thank you for posting that because 10 years ago, I lost my company, I lost my job, and I went into a deep depression for three years. And that idea of better versus bitter, right, I just wish I had that mindset back then. That would have made all the difference. And and so that that was really, it was really monumental, to be fair, about what happened at that time. Now, all of that aside, we came out of that and we – um, met with a few people, I'm told my wife and I, met with a few people to go, look, we're major shareholders. We're not happy with the way that this business that we have uh, still quite a stake in and is an important asset of ours. 
uh, being run this way. So what are our options? And spill the board. It didn't feel right. It sounds really revengeful, you know, get, spill the board. That didn't feel right. So talking to a few people, it was an extraordinary general meeting, an EGM, to remove the chair, remove one of the NEDs, who was quite um, um, an activist to have me removed, and then keep the other two and appoint this person that I know. In fact, they keep the two and the, the other person, they were both all women, mm. right? And that's we. I put that to the board and the board said, no, we're going, we believe that you won't get the votes or they didn't. Mm. They didn't entertain that as an option. So we went towards an EGM. In the meantime, they, um, on one particular day, I don't know, six weeks in, two investors rang the chairman and said, what the hell are you doing? We're not voting for you. You don't have the numbers. And then within a week, um, everyone had resigned and that was announced. And I then went about recruiting a new chair who was appointed uh, last week. And we're just appointing the other directors at the moment. So we're now talking December 2022 for those that are listening in the future. And 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 so um, I said to my brother-in-law, who's also a major shareholder, we both own 15% or our wives, our families own 15% each. I said, you know what? We really needed to tur- um, turn over the board. The board um, was not right for a small micro cap. You know, our market cap has gone from 350 million 30 million right it's, yeah and we're, we're riding the the, the tech mm. tech wreck way but mm. i've seen it before temple and webster mm. they were 15 cents in in 2017 um and then they got to 14 dollars. so mm. we're all on it together things that we're in we're in the winter it'll get to spring yes and for those that yes. are in a good spot they'll take advantage of spring and summer and and you'll be blooming again and our job is really to make sure we're we're at that point to take advantage of that so so it was quite, it, it's been, when you see, when you talk about failures, this is important. It's like, I, I would have never expected that I was going to be given those lessons. Um, the most, the one that I, I'd like everyone to reflect on is that um, uh, Kate Morris from Adore Beauty stepped away from the CEO role before the IPO and appointed um, uh, uh, Tennille. That, in retrospect, that was clever, um, even though, a lot of people did invest in me. I think the idea of having somebody in there, not so they can take the fall for you, but it's more about um, that you're there as a backup, that that would have been um, probably a better way. Because as an entrepreneur, right, um, I don't have all the skills to be the CEO of a listed company. It's not, it's a very different um, yes. Yes. set of yes. skills and and talent exactly i mean i've got some serial entrepreneurs that we manage their personal brands and they step as founders they will appoint the ceo as soon as it gets to an x amount of capital raise they want to separate because they don't want to be in the nitty-gritty of it they want to be the vision they and the smart ones really understand that and they are pushing the board saying you know i need a ceo like i don't want to be a ceo and founder and maybe that's the separation um, that is yeah. very much needed. So, what are you up to these? I should have been, talk- I should have been talking to you a few years ago. That would have, <laughs> I probably would. Have, uh, I probably would have listened. But look, some some um, founders um, go on from strength to strength. Um, yeah. um, I just because of um, because I have ADHD and I've lived with it all my life. Not that I knew that until um, I think it's about seven years ago when my son got diagnosed. 
Um, it's but ADHD is a superpower. And that whole thing about building the company and getting like you, if you find something that you love doing, you just, your, your, your relentless pursuit of, of, of winning, um, the stamina that you have for something that you love doing is, is, um, is unbreakable. I can only imagine that Shakespeare or Da Vinci or Michael, you know, people like that who who were so um, exceptional because they they just immersed themselves in whatever it was would have had to have had not to say that they did. I don't. I've got no idea. Experts probably can do mm -hmm. do the research, but there'd be plenty who have been successful but to then know when to step away because it's going to a level that um you you go into overwhelm or you you're you're um this you you become dysfunctional i guess to a degree um is is really important now the fact i never really even knew that i had that um meant that um once once i found out the penny dropped on a lot of things and then i i became um better at managing what I can focus on and what, what I need to make sure I've got um, an EA or partner to keep me on track. Yeah, I'm really glad you meant mentioned the ADHD because a lot of people are, you know, have got that, especially entrepreneurs. It's a very, it's, it's something that a lot of us have to a spectrum, you know, to a degree. And I know a lot of my employees, you know, have really discovered recently, much more later in their life that, you know, they're, they're really strong operators, but they've discovered they do have ADHD because of their children. And so, you know, hearing you say that, it may, because first they were like, there's something wrong with me. Like, you know, I'm not like straight away. That's what you start thinking. I've been diagnosed with this thing and now I can't operate. So just hearing you share that, it's really empowering for people to go, no, I'm not. It, there's people that have been hugely successful with this and I really want to pass that message on that it's it's actually a very common thing in entrepreneurs or really um really really successful people and it, it can be it can be used as a power tool yeah I know we're running out of time and we yes. could really go on for another couple of hours I reckon which we may want to do it could be a part one part two I'm very yes. happy to do that awesome um the the thing that um so when when I was in my mid-20s, I was traveling around the world. I traveled around the world for a few years. And I was in London, working in London as a recruiter. And I got selected to go on an expedition to South America. In the UK, it's called Operation Rally. And, and so I got on this expedition. And there was a young Scottish guy in my group. There was 150 people on the expedition, 15 in our group. And he, this guy was 18. And what I remember of him, and I, I would have been like 25, 26 at the time, he he was completely accept, accepting of all of his foibles, all of the things that he was hopeless at. Like, it was quite, I remember um, reflecting on it at the time going, how can you be, how can you be that um, not forgetful or ineffective or something, but certain things were not working for him, but he was just, well, that's just, that's the way I am. And it was, it, it meant that he was, he had certain freedoms to be who he was without to being so judgmental on himself and so tough on himself and, and like, you know, assessing himself and going, you idiot, you, you know, how could you stuff up? So when I observed that, 
I, I had a template. I had a learned model. I had a model that I could start to get a little freedom around. And as an entrepreneur, quite frankly, any in life, but especially when you're running your own company and you've got people around you, to to be the the kindest critic that you can be of yourself, to learn and go, yeah, that didn't work. Or you do a speech. I remember doing a speech at the Telstra Business Awards um, and it was just it came out wrong. And I remember being embarrassed about it. I remember being, but it's like, but I let it go within a day. But I, I can imagine when I was much younger, I probably would have had so much shame around oh, how humiliating, how, but now nah, I'll learn from that. I'm not going to have that same mindset. or I'm not going to say those silly things next time it was stupid, right? So other people would have forgotten about it. I was the only one that was ever going to remember it. And that, that, being kind on yourself when those things are happening is such an important part of running your company. Yeah. Like, yeah. Um, yeah I, I do encourage everyone to, it's a learned skill. It's, you can to, master Did it. you have any mindset coach? No, I've done it all myself. Cool. But keep in mind though, I've probably put myself through about 500 days of personal development workshops over the years. Okay. So yeah. when I went in there, I wasn't uh, a wallflower sitting on the wall um, watching the show in the probably the first one or two I did or at least the first one I was you know really in judgment you know this is a uh, not that it's a cult but this is you know this is um, not that it's a religion but it was just a bit odd mm. but once I got over the fact that um, that um, it was a process I then immersed myself and what I was very clear on is I wanted to learn as much as I could in those rooms rather than trying to stuff it up out in the real world. So I, I really did give it a hundred percent. I've kind of done the same in work, but so, um, but I, I, when I was younger, I wrote a lot of personal journals just to try and, you know, process what happened or you know, yeah. what, how I could be a bit more effective. Um, you did, and very early on, you talked about something which we I didn't touch on. I know we're coming to the yes. end. There was something about um, the intuition or knowing whether you're on track or off track. And and per personally, what I, the way that I describe that is like in a pitch black room where you cannot even see the hand in front of your face. When you take a step forward, you know whether you're on track or off track. So that step it goes mm, it doesn't feel right I just need to be a little bit yeah that feels right so that idea of of knowing whether you're on track or off track is a very internal process so how proud you are or the pride that you have in what you're doing is not referenced by other people so when you talk about me in the beginning um which is if you take me back 20 30 years ago it would have been really um awkward or uncomfortable because um um it, you know it's it's quite something when someone says that about yourself but if if not to say that i i deflect what you said mm -hmm. and go oh no no that's just melanie being nice and mm -hmm. it's really not me if she really knew me and how useless i am at these other things she never would have said that right it's like but to to know that it's coming from within you mm -hmm. um rather than trying to be um, um, kind of acknowledged or justified, verified by the external world, by what people say to you. Like, 
um, that is that is going to really limit your success. So um, now it's not an egotistical thing. It's like or some sort of you know like I'm you know I'm a you know I'm I don't care what you think about me. Um, yeah. Uh, it's my way or the highway. It's not that at all. It's actually it's it's a very soft um, meditative. Not I I don't meditate. A lot of people think that mm-hmm. I do, but um, it's more of a it's, a it's a softer journey, if I can describe it in that way. No, it makes sense. I think Tony, with with you, I think I'm getting some back. Uh, I can hear myself, but um, I think we will need a part two because there's just so much wisdom in you. But I want to ask you one question and finish because I promise Chris um, Jade, who has been an author and is been writing about his story on LinkedIn and he's been going viral every time. So he's been getting the 300,000. We've been helping him write and put out his view every time he posts about his story and his life, you know, he's going viral and we've been doing that for the last 18 months. But right now where he said, he told me to write, bring this up with you is I'd love to get my story out across Australia um, about, you know, how I've just kept going, even though I was meant to be dead at 30 and built you know, a uh, eight, uh, ten million ARR business, and I'm now pushing that into US. And I'm also wanting to launch my book in US in the next week or two. But I'd really love to know Tony's help or recommendation on who to work with to get my story out to as many Australians and entrepreneurs as possible. Mm. In the old days, it was like you put yourself in a dark room or a light room or you know a keyboard or a typewriter or a computer and you just bang away and and you you privately come up with a manuscript which then you give if you're lucky to a literary agent who may um, endorse it who then takes it to a bunch of publishers who then like it in its raw form and then maybe you get a, a publishing contract it's changed so there are many paths now to to market there's there's you don't have to rely on publishers anymore for it to, for you to have a huge success, um, there are the we have a public. So Booktopia now has um, a distribution business. So we represent publishers. Um, Amazon buys from our distribution business. We buy from it. Shops buy from it if we have the books that they want. Um, and we also have a publishing business. So through that, I've been able to learn a little bit more about um, what we do. We don't. It's not a big part of our business. I kind of did it to keep the buggers honest. Um, um, the publishers, but um, at the end of the day, if you have a big, if you have a big following, like so, if if in this instance he has a, a big following, um, you don't really need to have the old model anymore. You've got your followers. You keep building on that, um, and when they come out, when an author comes out with a book, your social influence over your devotees, your your fans, whoever, like they will buy it. And there are some books that are being published at the moment where it's not even hitting the bookshops or the the shelves because the author has a million and a half followers and they just send it out to them and they get shipped. It doesn't even hit like the, the book, the book um, scan numbers. Right. So um, that's, that's one way. However, there are a lot of authors who do like to have their books on shelves and they want to know that it's there. We, we don't really have access to that. You really do need to get into the traditional models to make sure that you're in an airport, make sure that you're in 
um, a, um, you know, Dimix or a QBD or your local um, independent bookstore, like they're, they're, they're really the traditional publishers. At the end of the day, though, a good book is a good book, right? So it, the cream will rise to the top. Um, do not underestimate. If you're, if you're a budding author, like do not underestimate the amount of money that needs to be spent on editing and re and re-edit, re-edit and, and maybe some structural yeah. edits to knock it into shape because even the best of the best, the J.K. Rowlings, the James Pattersons and in Australia, our very best authors will have a team of people who are working with the author to knock that into shape. Um, That's right. Yeah. He's been doing that for two years now and being charged arm and a leg to get this ready and, you yeah. know, editing back and forward. So he's just like yeah. now finally after so many edits. Yeah, and... <laughs> so that's a good point. So that that's the difference between you buying a, an apartment off the plan and going, um, I really love the Like that sounds amazing. It'll be finished in two years versus here's the finished product of, of which um, he has taken on. Uh, he has created more certainty around that book getting to be able to scale, whereas the publisher has to make decisions on whether they're going to invest the same money that he's done. Correct. Now, sometimes you don't have to do that. Sometimes the, the idea is that good or the timing is perfect because post-pandemic, pre-pandemic, um, recession, good yeah. t- like travel, no travel, like all those things make a difference on the success of a book. Like who's to say that Harry Potter today would have been as big as it exactly. was then? You don't Context. know, right? Context. That's right. So, so yeah, he, he or whoever's listening, if you've got an idea, but the idea of creating it and sitting at your computer and then giving it to someone and, and the, it will, it will magically take off. Um, that's like winning Powerball, winning the lottery. Like it is, that is so uncommon. It's mostly, um, in the hands of the author to really get out there and do like I did in the beginning is write those Google ads and you you get to a tipping point. If it's your third or fourth book, then you've got critical mass, people will buy it. So uh, I don't know how helpful that is other than um, there, there are many ways to, to get no, it's published. it's super helpful. Um, sounds- Sup- Super yeah. helpful and the fact, you know, the power of social influence is what we've been doing together with him is incredible today than it, what it was like to mm. be able to go and post something and get that kind of 300,000 reach every time you post about your story it, it get, it's got product market fit so we've got a, you know a real it's great to hear you also say you know this is another way it's not doesn't have to be traditional but but there I, are there are publishers there are publishers that um that would um now look at that of, uh, of all that work that's been done. The problem is, is that they take quite a large share of it. So you got to look at the, you know, the financial return. You get, you really get bugger all um, <laughs> when you go through a publisher, and and yeah. so you need to look at that as well. Just because they big publisher is going to publish you doesn't mean that um, you've finally made it. Um, it's absolutely. It, it, it takes a long time. Well, thank you so much for your generous time and sharing. I think there's so much more to unpack, unlock, because you've just got so much depth there that to share. So every time we go into something, it's like, wow, this is incredible. This is so um, powerful. I mean, if I was to do it at part two with you again, I think I'd almost need to go to the community and just go, what do you want to ask? And just go and ask you one after the other. But um, you're incredible. I love 
how you think, how your journey has been and, you know, the focus on mindset that you have talked about today, again, really lets me know that that's the right way to move as an entrepreneur. So I've been doing a lot of that, but to hear it from you um, is incredible and really pleasing to know that's the right way to move. So thank you so much, Tony. You are listening to Innovative Minds.